Hi, this is Sam. And this is Lily. And this is Underrepresented. Let's start off first with some introductions. My name is Sam, and I am a first-year graduate student of the clinical psychology program at Idaho State University. I completed my undergrad at Idaho State University as well, and my research interests include autism spectrum disorder and autism spectrum disorder treatments. So I'm Lily, and I'm also a first-year grad student of clinical psychology at Idaho State University. I attended the University of North Carolina Wilmington for my undergrad, and there I conducted research in a behavioral pharmacology lab where we really examined um, drug effects on impulsive behaviors. And so my interests have shifted a little bit, but not too much, but because now I am interested in examining factors that influence decision-making in individuals from marginalized populations. Yeah, so for me, um, I got my bachelor's at the University of Washington in Seattle in psychology. And I took a couple years off just to kind of build up my own resume before applying to grad school. Um, I worked in an outpatient clinic doing both research and clinical work, um, especially with young folks and uh, young adults with DBT as well as behavioral parent training. And then I got my master's and PhD in clinical child psychology at the University of Kansas in their clinical child psychology program. Um, I did my, my doctoral internship at Children's Mercy Kansas City, and I'm in my second year of my fellowship um, at Lurie Children's in Chicago. And during my grad school, I also completed a graduate certificate in LGBT health practice and policy at George Washington University in DC. Wow, that's really awesome. Um, it seems like uh, you're really interested in, in children, and I am as well, so that's really cool. Um, can you uh, describe anything that uh, relates your educational history to your career history? Yeah, I would say like my career history is pretty non-existent since I'm still in fellowship. <laughs> but I would say like with my education and career choice, I really chose to go into the field of clinical psychology and it was really informed by my undergraduate experiences. Um, I think a lot, I always say like similar to a lot of other probably Asian American folks, went to college with like a dream and ideal of being in the health services field. Um, and for me, I think a lot of it focused within kind of understanding psychology. And in undergrad, I really did pursue more of the psych related courses. And a lot of my interests actually fell within kind of a cognitive psych framework um, rather than any kind of clinical. Um, it wasn't really until I started to do research in labs in undergrad that I was really exposed to what clinical psych was. And so a lot of my work in undergrad was around PTSD research um, clinically, as well as research with DBT. And so that kind of introduced me to kind of the more applied um, aspect of psychology since I was really only knowing of what kind of the hard science of cognitive neuroscience essentially was. Um, and which led me to take two years off after graduating because I really wanted to explore what clinical psychology was and how like science and uh, clinical practice was really integrated. And throughout my whole graduate career, um, I kind of just started to continue to narrow down my focus, especially in the populations I was interested in, um, into now where I am now, I really focus within transgender and non-binary youth, as well as youth affected by different sex development or intersex conditions. Um, so yeah, I think 
throughout my experiences in undergrad and grad school has really informed kind of where I wanted to end up in a career, uh, which ended up here in an academic medical setting, which allows me to do both clinical practice and research. Uh, so yeah. So would you say that um, being in this postdoc fellowship, is it aligning with what you would like to do in the future? Yes, very much so. Um, right now, my fellowship is, the division of labor I have right now is 50-50, so 50% clinical practice, 50% research time, um, which I will say is quite a rarity, <laughs> um, not only as a career-wise, but also in the fellowship too. Um, so I'm very uh, fortunate to have found this opportunity. Um, and I really do like this division of labor. I think the field of clinical psychology is unique in that it really does emphasize a nice integration of science and practice and how your research questions can be informed by uh, real-time clinical experiences and vice versa. Uh, and so I think when I was looking for a fellowship, I really wanted to find a nice balance just to see. Um, I really did love research and that's why I got a PhD, um, but I also love clinical practice and um, this fellowship I'm in is a two-year fellowship, so it's been a nice time to kind of be in this same kind of um, division of labor, uh, just to see how it feels. And I really enjoy it. I think it's a great, um, great division that I think would be kind of my ideal moving forward, trying to find a job. But I think, like I said, I think it's going to be it's a rarity to find such a division in which you know to do research as a psychologist. A lot of it's based on your own funding, and so. Um, hopefully I can find something that's similar to this division labor I have now. Um, but I really do like a balance of both clinical and research. So what are your research interests? Yeah, so my, uh, my research program and clinical interest really falls, I would say, it falls really broadly into understanding, identifying, and addressing health disparities um, amongst minoritized and marginalized populations. Um, of course, in this fellowship I'm in right now, I'm really focusing and honing in into understanding these disparities within transgender and non-binary youth. Um, and so my research right now really focuses on what we call like a gender minority stress. So how our transgender non-binary youth experience stress from a, what we call a distal factor. So factors of stress that come from, from like an ecological systems kind of framework. So understanding like how society and laws and discrimination or rejection um, from these broader ecological systems have really impacted your well-being, but also understanding how that has influenced kind of that more internalized process. Um, so understanding that like the stuff that you see on movies and TVs, the laws that are put in place, uh, discriminatory practices have really informed kind of negative expectations for trans youth uh, for their future, or just inadvertently so like internalized transphobia because of the messaging they've been exposed to and they've been receiving throughout their life. Um, and so it's this really interesting way to understand not only like the, the individual themselves, but how to understand the structural and the systemic stressors that are happening too. And um, how we as psychologists can understand not only the individual, but how to address the environmental and systems to help support the child. Wow, that's really awesome. It seems really relevant at this time and uh, a really interesting topic to look at, um, especially because there's little research done within that area. So that's really cool. Um, is there anything that 
relates to your past research or anything that you want to share about your past research? Yeah, so in my past research, um, I get a question a lot from grad students of, you know, this is the population I'm really interested in, or like, this is the kind of the where I want my research to go. And I always tell folks that, you know, in my own, when I first started grad school, I didn't even research uh, LGBT populations, really. I really took a really broad lens. And I viewed grad school as kind of like getting that foundation first, like a good foundation to build my research and clinical practice. And so in grad school, a lot of my research was very broad and understanding from like an ecological systems as well, but like understanding the context and the environments that youth are in and how that influences really risky behaviors. And so I really focused especially on like neighborhood characteristics. So community violence, exposure, neighborhood disadvantage, um, neighborhood safety. I looked at school environment, school safety and parenting practices and how these broader systems really influenced, uh, when I say risk behaviors, I like broadly stroked the brush and I really focus on like substance use, delinquency, um, bullying victimization, those kinds of outcomes. Um, and I really did try to focus on like marginalized populations. So a lot of my projects were community-based. Um, so I did a lot of work in separate school districts and school-based studies. We did studies in juvenile detention centers. Um, and so a lot of my efforts, I think, in grad school especially, gave me that strong foundation of understanding like these health disparities, understanding this foundation of um, the systems. And I think as I progressed through grad school, I just started to narrow it further and further into the populations that I was interested in particularly. Um, I think which was a, a really nice strategy because I think I started to get more of that base skill set, that base foundation, especially understanding how to partner with communities um, from this systemic and systems-based research perspective um, that allows me to kind of understand how to navigate this research world, right, with trans, transgender non-binary youth um, and what kind of systems are in play and community partners we can partner with. Awesome. Um... So a more specific question, what are you doing any research currently? I assume that you are with your fellowship, as you mentioned, um, what specific projects are you working on? Yeah, um, so right, right now I have um, some grant funding that I've obtained specific to look at non-binary use. Uh, and so when I say non-binary, I know a lot of the times colloquially, non-binary is kind of also used as a brush to capture trans youth too. But um, in my research question, when I say non-binary, I truly mean kind of outside the binary in any sense of the word. And so that includes youth who don't identify in the trans binary as like trans masculine or trans feminine either. And so this non-binary term, um, I've loosely kind of captured those folks who might identify as gender fluid or agender um, or gender queer. Um, so anything within the spectrum that does not ascribe to a binary in any sense of that term. Uh, because what we've seen, especially in the adult literature is that non-binary individuals do experience a like a similar effect of minority stress that I parallel a little bit to bisexuality, where there's still that kind of not ascribing to any of that dichotomy, that binary of heterosexuality. Um, and so there's still that kind of internalized or like within the group of transgender, there's still some internal discrimination or potential rejection 
even from trans masculine, trans feminine people looking at gender queer, non-binary folks, agender folks saying like, you're giving us a bad name because you're not ascribing to this binary that our society has been grounded in. Um, and so there's this unique aspect of trying to understand the perspectives of non-binary youth, especially when as it relates to medical treatment. Because I think as a medical field, we've really come a long way to understand how trans youth can transition medically from one binary gender to the other binary gender, right? And taking gender affirming hormones, for example, and doing gender affirming surgeries. But less is really known of how a non-binary person understands their body, first of all, or how they want to kind of perceive themselves in the future, uh, whether they don't want to ascribe to a very binary gender in their body sense, right? Like having the genitals, having the very typical stereotypical masculine feminine characteristics, and rather perhaps wanting to maintain a sense of androgyny, a sense of just, um, from what I've heard from some of my youth, it's just like a gender expression that might cause confusion for other people that begs them to question like, what gender are you? Uh, but like from a medical standpoint, we're like, then how do we help you achieve that? You know, like if we give you testosterone, can we give you in smaller doses so you don't experience the true, all the true masculinizing and permanent masculinizing effects of testosterone that is really masculine, like a really deep voice and a lot of body hair. Um, and maybe we can just microdose it to kind of give you some effects of it, but not all of the effects and vice versa with estrogen, right? Uh, but like I said, I think there's a big gap in the literature understanding youth, uh, non-binary youth, and their understanding of their identity development, first of all, because I think even in social media and media today, there's a lot more visibility of not only transgender identities, but non-binary identities. I think of celebrities like Sam Smith and JVN, who come out as gender fluid and non-binary using they, them pronouns, which is amazing. And I'm so glad that there's a visibility out there. Um, so I think it's really providing language and understanding and context for youth who might also be like, oh, hey, this is what it means then to be non-binary. That, that is my experience. Uh, but also understanding like, then how can we make you, or how can we help you address some of that dysphoria you're still feeling about your body? Uh, whether it is like, do you want medical intervention at all? Do you feel comfortable identifying as non-binary and not doing anything medically? Um, so I think there's still a lot to be explored. And so my research study is a qualitative study to actually just interview our non-binary youth and just to understand from their perspectives, like, just let me know, like, what, what was your gender journey? Or we call it your gender history. Like, how did you come to understand a non-binary identity? Did you ever identify as like trans man or a trans woman? Um, and then how did you kind of reconcile that and understand, like, actually, no, I'm not this binary sense of the word. Like, I'm actually more fluid. Um, and like, what was it that kind of helped you get to that point? Was it exposure in social media? Was it talking more through it with your friends? Uh, was it family? Was it any other kind of cultural values that you might've had? Uh, so I think it's a really interesting study to start to understand and how to inform not only medical treatment, but us as behavioral health to kind of help facilitate some of this discussion and facilitate a lot of that identity development. Um, but yeah, that's one of my bigger projects I have going on. <laughs> um, I do a lot of other stuff too with intervention development and group intervention and curricula. Um, I think like you mentioned, Sam, in the very beginning, like a lot of the topics that I'm interested in is, is highlighted in today's kind of current political and social climate. Um, and so one of the, my most recent projects was uh, with another psychologist here on our team, we developed this group curriculum 
uh, we called it SPARC. Um, it stands for, let me see if I remember it, supporting, um, supporting pride, advocacy, resilience, and community. Uh, so a C, not a K in SPARC. Um, and this group was, de we developed this specifically for our trans and non-binary youth of color. Because um, I think myself and this other psychologist really found in our own private sessions with our own patients that our trans youth of color were really having more explicit conversations with us about kind of the ongoings of our social and political climate and the violence against black and brown bodies. And so we thought like, you know, I think it'd be great to have a group for these young folks to meet each other, especially in the time of COVID where you can't meet anyone right now anyways. And so I was like, we thought it'd be helpful just to provide a space for them to see other folks that have shared identities. And then I also can just talk about, you know, topics that they might not be able to talk about with any of their friends. Um, and so we really developed this group. It was not a therapeutic curriculum at all. It was very much based in kind of an intersectionality perspective, understanding like we all have identities that intersect. It's not just solely our gender identity, not solely our... Um, sexual identity, not just our race, ethnicity, but a lot of our, especially marginalized identities um, can compound uh, with stress, especially as a marginalized identities within a very dominant um, cisgender, white patriarchal um, society. And so it was a six group session that we evaluated and piloted. And uh, the feedback that we got was that it was a really good experience for them just to, to have these conversations. I think um, when we talk to these youth, a lot of their friend groups, while they are queer, um, were not people of color. Um, and so I think there is, there, is, there is a lot of value to meeting folks who have a lot of shared identities, to have a lot of these candid conversations that um, these young folks might not have opportunities for. And so, yeah, that's another brief example of other stuff that we're doing. But, but yeah, that's a lot of my interest right now falls a lot with kind of how can we translate our research into practice and whether that's intervention development or understanding how we can adapt our own interventions and treatment practices through qualitative interviewing. I think that's a really cool thing about psychology. There's a lot of different things we can do. Yeah, and both of those projects seem very important and something that needs to be uh, studied right now. Um, so that's, that's a really, really great thing that you're doing. Um, really cool. Um, the last Thanks. question that I have for you um, is in a perfect world with unlimited funding and participants, what kind of research would you do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think in my own world, um, in a perfect world. I really do um, want to continue this line of research. I think that a lot of my work now, especially informed by the Spark group that we developed and the state of our world right now has really kind of narrowed into this understanding of like, how can we as psychologists adapt and tailor these interventions to reach youth who need it the most? And of course, I think a lot of it is not just kind of a therapeutic wise kind of intervention, but rather like, how do we address the system at play here? Um, whether it is, how do we address these barriers in accessing care? You know, I think COVID has really did 
a weird double-edged sword and where, you know, we're all jumping to telehealth, which is an interesting way to say like, hey, this might be a really good way to address access to care while also understanding that flip side of the coin of like, well, is it actually because, you know, do our, our young folks and families who are socioeconomically disadvantaged have access to reliable internet? Do they have access to the primary care clinic that has an EHR? Or that they can access their provider. And a lot of the times, no, like I work a lot with the Medicaid population here and a lot of the times our internet sucks. And, you know, the quality of our session, the quality of our rapport has been um, not ideal to carry on therapy. And so still understand like, yeah, we have these great opportunities and advances in technology and it'd be great to see if it really does address these health disparities. And at the same time being mindful, like it's probably, there's a lot of other factors that we need to consider. And so I think what's really cool about our profession as clinical psychologists is that we have a lot of cool skill sets that we gain, right? We're not just clinicians, we're not just researchers, we do both. And that was like one of the big reasons I did that graduate certificate program at George Washington during grad school um, to understand, you know, how then do I integrate both these skill sets and integrate it into like, how do we inform policy then? You know, like how do I enact more change with this on like a more macro level? Um, especially in this field of trans health, I think there was this quote, I'm trying to remember who it was from, but it was just saying that like, we didn't go into the field as clinical psychologists in the field of trans health to be activists, but this is our natural role that we find ourselves in is to be social activists for these populations. And I couldn't agree more. Like I didn't ever think that pursuing career in psychology, I would be an activist in any sense of that term um, until I started working with this population. And now understanding like that is an inherent part of our job, right? There has to be elements of social justice. We element, like we integrate in everyday practices, whether it's in therapy, whether that's in picking variables for a research question, whether it's just like advocating for a client to, I don't know, get insurance coverage, right? We're, we're doing advocacy, we're being activists at our very core. And I think that is a really interesting and really needed direction in our training. Um, and so like in the future, like I hope and I dream that like my research is informed with a social justice lens and like future clinical psychologists and grad students are trained to understand like how then do we integrate our skills kind of to get out of this ivory tower of academia and like how then do we translate all of this to like actually benefit the public. Um, not to poo-poo on any of the academics out there. <laughs> uh, they're doing very valuable work and work that I can never attain with my limited statistical knowledges and all of that. Um, but I think there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack with understanding how psychology can be used um, in a sense of activism and engaging in social activism in any sense of the word in our daily practice. And um, I hope to continue that in my own research. And like I said, developing interventions for marginalized populations, but also understanding like, how do we get these interventions out there and reach the populations that we want um, would be my dream if we had the money yeah. and the populations. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really awesome perspective. And I think that a lot of people can take on that perspective when they're going through graduate training um, and really just have them have that help them uh, within their careers later on as well. Um, I've never really thought about that. So thank you for that perspective. That was that was really awesome. 
Yeah. Yeah, do you have any additional comments that you would like to add? Not really. <laughs> Nothing comes to mind. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, helping us with this interview and um, yeah. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Of course. Okay, I'm going to stop recording now.